0: Hey, entrepreneurs! it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entreprenissa League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our experience week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our experience week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Peral, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneur, as well as a prominent angel investor. You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entreprenista League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at Entreprenista.com forward that's entrepreneurista.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey. I needed
1: something like that to, yeah. to get me out of the mindset that work is the most important thing. Yeah. And it's so easy to be in that mindset when you love what you do and you get that positive feedback all the time. You're getting press, you're getting investor inbound, you're getting opportunities to meet cool people. I mean, I was you know, it was awesome. Like, I, I loved my career. And so I needed, like, I th- I don't think I would have, I, I don't think I would have realized that my priorities were, like, all out of whack. And I could still have a meaningful career without, like, sacrificing the things that are most important to you.
0: Be a generalist and a specialist at the same time. There lies the secret to Halle Techos inspiring success From investing in over 100 companies, including big names like Kindbody and Robin, to launching both Rock Health and most recently Natalist. Her path is unique and full of learnings. You're about to hear Hallie share stories from her early days working in Silicon Valley to a pivotal moment that made her rethink her work-life balance. And finally, the launch of Needalist, her latest venture, which offers conception products that are inspired by both beauty and science. She also shares essential tips for founders looking to raise venture capital, including the value of a cold intro and the importance of timing. Coming up, you'll hear how Hallie kicked off her career in finance and quickly realized her sweet spot was at the intersection of healthcare and business being in Silicon Valley in 2006, and how she grew her first company, Rock Health. A pivotal moment in Hallie's life that forced her to rethink her work-life balance and made her make a big change. Hallie's experience with infertility and IVF, and what inspired her to launch her current business, Nitalist, how social media is Nitalist's biggest growth channel, and her involvement in the content that they share each day. How launching Natalus in Target in April during a pandemic helped her shift her core messaging. Why the best investment she has made has been in the culture of her company. Experiencing a 500% growth during a pandemic while also prioritizing work-life balance and tips on how to achieve it. Haley's best advice entrepreneurs says looking to raise venture capital from timing to what she looks for in a cold email. Hallie, I am so excited to finally sit down and have a conversation with you. This recording has been a long time coming. We were supposed to sit down together in New York City back in March before everything, before everything changed, before the world changed. So I'm glad we've finally been able to make this happen.
1: Yeah, in true 2020 fashion. Here we are on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do what
0: you got to do. You pivot, you make things happen, and you just keep going. I feel like that's been the theme of the
1: year. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Hallie, I would love for you to share a little background about yourself, your business, with our audience, because you have quite the impressive resume and background. I wouldn't even know where to begin in this
1: introduction. <laughs> okay, well, I'm blushing. So yeah, I, I mean, how far back should I go? I feel I'm 37 now. I turned 37 last week. So that makes birthday 15 years in in the workforce. Although I've, I've had a job since it was legally possible to do so. I always worked through high school, through college. So I've, you know, my my career actually started a long, long, long time ago, but professionally really started my career in finance. I worked for Intel in the finance department right out of college. I went to college. I'm a first generation college graduate. And I went to school about less than an hour from where I grew up. And I studied finance. And after being in Cleveland for that long, I was like, I'm going to take the job that gets me farthest away from home. And so landed in San Francisco, where I knew exactly one person who had graduated a year before me, but really, you know, completely changed my life. I had really not left Ohio for my whole life other wow. than going abroad. And so that was the whole reason I took the job. I had some job offers in other cities. Cleveland, Chicago, Boston, but I was like, I just need to go as far away. I need to just have the opposite life experience that I'm having right now. And that was an amazing choice for me, professionally being in Silicon Valley in 2006, really at the early stages of some really interesting companies that were coming to life at the time. I made a lot of amazing friends. I met my now husband, and I started off a career that was really meaningful and really kind of merged my interests in business and doing good. I ended up then going back to business school, you know, after a few years of working. And that was another really pivotal moment for me, you know, because I didn't necessarily have a pedigree degree for my undergrad. It was really important to me to kind of add that to my resume. And so I went to Harvard Business School, which was a huge deal, as I said, first generation college graduate, very big deal for for me, for my family, for my parents. And that opened up a ton of opportunities for me. Professionally, obviously made a wonderful network there, learned a ton. And with that, I really was able to kind of figure out a way to truly combine my interests, which were at that point kind of evolved from broadly being business and doing good, and was a little bit more narrow on like business and healthcare. But within healthcare, what I was really excited about at the time was how healthcare was changing and consumer, being being consumerized. And people were starting to take more control and having more control over their healthcare journeys. What and year was this now? This was 2000, 2010. I went, to, okay. I went to business school between 2009 and 2011. And so really kind of solidified my, so a decade ago, oh my gosh, uh, solidified that there was something really exciting, we're at the process of something very, very exciting in healthcare that was going to drive really true change and value for our patients. And so between my first and second years in business school, I had the amazing opportunity to work at Apple and they put me in charge of, um, in the, I worked for the app store specifically, so all the apps on the iPhone and the iPad, which was a year old when I joined And they put me in charge of the healthcare segment that no one was really looking after at that time. So here I was like 25-year-old intern. They were like, Here, you do the, you know, you do the healthcare. There's nothing really interesting there. And they were right. There really wasn't anything interesting there. And I sat next to a woman, Linda Kim, who was overseeing the gaming segment. And we're still friends. She's an advisor to me at Natalist. She's had a really she's actually moved into healthcare afterwards, ironically. But I was so jealous of all the apps and the developers that were working in her segment because they were building truly innovative, cool apps that were using all the native features of the phone and were really delightful to use. And then like the healthcare apps were all, you know, they they were just like, they they weren't great, right? Like they were what you would imagine a healthcare app would be. You could imagine there was some like board of a hospital that was like checking the box of things that we need to do in 2010. And one of them is like build an app. So they outsource it to some group and they, you know they build these straw man apps that don't really add value. And so I saw that as an opportunity to really more direct to consumer with healthcare opportunities. And so when I graduated school, I guess when I went, went back to school for that year, I worked on an independent study, kind of coming up with a thesis for how we could really invigorate the healthcare mobile app world, and then kind of expanded that to just technology, like how can we better leverage technology in healthcare and how do we bring people together that have the expertise in design, in product development, in tech, machine learning, and how do we kind of bring them to the table along with the healthcare providers? So we don't, we don't, you know, my goal is never, I've been a healthcare kind of outsider in healthcare for a long time, but it's never about replacing doctors or replacing the healthcare system. It's about helping them do what they love doing, which is helping people. And so right out of school, I started Rock Health. And we partnered with some really awesome healthcare organizations. Mayo Clinic has been a partner of Rock Health from day one. Kaiser Permanente, Mercer. So really large industry leaders in the space. And then we started recruiting founders that generally came from Places like Google, IDEO, you know, Apple, and really bringing them, giving them capital, but really bringing them into the healthcare fold and helping introduce them to the right people and get the right feedback early on in their businesses. So ran, so started Rock Health, like right out of business school, didn't even like skip a beat, just like, you know, so excited about this opportunity
0: Do you take all of the learnings from what you were taught at Harvard Business School? Did you apply all of that to starting your business? Or were you just kind of winging it and figuring it out as you went along?
1: Yeah. So I will say my network was way more helpful than like the learnings. Mm -hmm. I think I... Absorbed a lot of a lot of things subconsciously that helped me become a more confident leader. But in terms of the industry that I was working in, it was very nascent at the time, and there weren't classes on kind of healthcare transformation. I took some classes in healthcare, but they were all biotech, which is very different. Drug discovery is a very different industry than healthcare delivery. So it would, I would say business school gave me. The confidence gave me, you know, the acumen, the business acumen, gave me more investment exposure. So, you know, I had done some angel investing a little bit before business school, one or two companies before business school, one or two companies during business school. So, I had a little bit of a track record angel investing. But and I did take some classes in venture capital, so I, I learned a little bit there. But I will say, you know, I was able to meet leaders at the Mayo Clinic, for instance, through my professors, and mm-hmm. those were the people who believed in me, you know, before I had anything but a deck for rock health. So yeah, I mean, business school, was, without business school, I would not have been able to start rock health, but it wasn't because of like the subject matter. <laughs> no, it was
0: interesting because we've, you know, had uh, probably over a hundred women on the podcast already, and many of them talk about how they didn't go to business school yeah. and they really just learned to launch their business and grow their business as they went along. But same as what you're sharing it was their network and meeting with other leaders and especially other women to help them, you know, learn the skills that they didn't have or, you know, meet other people that they wouldn't have access to. So I think regardless, you know, business school or not, just being able to get out there and network and not be afraid to to ask for help has definitely been a theme that we've heard over and over again.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a a big opportunity cost for business school too. You're out of the workplace for two years. So there's loss of income for two years. It's obviously extremely expensive. 50 to 100K for, you know, an MBA. So, you know, it's not, it's definitely not for everyone. For me, I, you know, at the time, I don't, I didn't love it at the time. It was really hard to adjust to business school. It's overwhelmingly men, it's overwhelmingly privileged people, including myself. I, I have a lot of privilege as well, but I didn't have, I didn't go to private schools. You know, I didn't have parents that went to college And, you know, so I I definitely felt at times like I didn't belong. I definitely felt imposter syndrome. But it kind of, they kind of beat it out of you. And you kind of just like come to a place where you're stripped raw every single day by your ideas and what you have to say. And so any insecurities are... Uh, just out there. And so, you know, you're everybody is really vulnerable. And so, yeah, we can have a whole other podcast <laughs> on business school or not. I I help mentor a lot of young women who are interested in going to business school and really helping them think through is, is business school the right graduate program? Is it the one that has the biggest ROI for you? For me, it definitely did. So, so yeah. So then... You know, Rock Health, which I went back to San Francisco, I had gotten engaged during business school. So I went back to San Francisco, my my now husband and I got married. And I ran Rock Health for, for many years there with a really awesome team. And we invest in a lot of great companies in digital health. We also started a research arm that was putting out and still puts out cutting edge research around different topics within digital health. And also had events, so the events business. I don't know how that's doing this year. I attended digitally, but I'm sure it didn't bring in as much revenue as the event usually does. As a eight hundred person event in San Francisco, so COVID definitely impacted that part of the business. But that was a great, you know, career experience for me. It was, you know, difficult because I, I as I said, I had a lot of imposter syndrome in business school, and I absolutely did as an investor and founder of Rock Health. I you know, question myself a lot of times, like, who am I to do this? And I heard that from others. I once pitched a funder who literally said that to me at the end of the pitch was like, who are you to do this? What um, did you say? And I, I mean, I, I, I like didn't respond. And then when we left, I was like in tears um, in tears. and my, my, I, I had a co-founder at, at rock health who was an MD MBA. So he really came with a healthcare, you know, mindset and he, you know, him and I had Equal amounts of experience investing, which was none, but he was a, a very good balance to me. And so, you know, I was just so upset that this investor said that to us. And he was like, "If he doesn't want to work with us, we don't want to work with him anyways. We only want to work with people who believe in us." And so, that was, you know, definitely those words definitely helped me kind of get over that rejection. But there were a lot of things. I mean, I had a reporter who was part of a, an industry beat that he constantly wrote things that I felt were personal attacks on me. I mean, he one time wrote, there was a conference in DC that I went to and I wore jeans because I was from, you know, worked in Silicon Valley. And he like wrote about me being dressed inappropriately because I was wearing jeans and like a Rock Health t-shirt at this like buttoned up, you know, healthcare conference. And I felt like, you know, like attack me for my ideas or for what I do, but not for what I wear. It definitely felt like there were a lot of, undertones of Like you know, just being very condescending about me because I was young and because I was a female. But you know, you kind of just you know you play the game until (laughs) it gets real. You know, you fake it till you make it. And we proved ourselves and we invest in a lot of awesome companies that have grown substantially. And you know, I'm really extremely proud of the work that we did. And eventually, you know, it's time for me to leave. My husband and I had been in San Francisco for nine years. You know, we had been working. You know, we, we didn't have a healthy work-life balance. We had been, both of us, he had a startup that he took from, you know, being a startup to IPO. I had been working at Rock Health and we weren't spending time for ourselves individually as a couple with our family and friends with our own personal health. And so we just needed to get out. We recognized that we, we, lo- we both loved working and, and really loved our jobs, but weren't going to have the sort of balance that we both realized we wanted unless we left so when you know we were around I guess 30 30 no 31 30 31 or in our early 30s when we decided to move and so that kind of helped. Get out of that like crazy workaholic environment that we had both, you know, been part of for so long. How long did it take
0: to make that decision and then put all the plans in place to move? Because I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are constantly going through this hustle and it can be hard to say okay, I'm ready to stop this and move forward and try something new and, you know, start a new chapter in life. Like what is, what was your planning process or your thought process and communication with your husband? Like,
1: well, I personally had an inflection point. So my father was still in Ohio, had a heart attack mm-hmm. and we didn't go home to see him because I had some big, important, fancy meeting, you know, at, Today, I couldn't tell you what that meeting was. It obviously wasn't that important. the time, it was so important to me that I missed going home and making sure my father was okay. Fortunately, he survived that heart attack Mm -hmm. and I was able to go home around the holidays. But when I really reflected on my decision, I was so ashamed of myself for putting work before family. And I swore to myself, I would never do that again. That Mm -hmm. like, Uh, My family is the most important thing to me, and I will. I'm like tearing up thinking about it, and like it was a it was a huge moment for me because you're making me cry now too. (laughs) Oh god, I don't know why I'm crying. That's my period, probably. (laughs) Um, No, but it was. You know, it was. It was. It it was. I needed something like that to happen to get me out of the mindset that work is the most important thing, and it's so easy. To be in that mindset when you love what you do and you get that positive feedback all the time, you're getting press, you're getting investor inbound, you're getting opportunities to meet cool people. I mean, I was, you know, it was awesome. Like I, I loved my career. And so I needed like, I think I don't think I would have, I, I don't think I would have realized that my priorities were like all out of whack. And I could still have a meaningful career without like sacrificing the things that are most important to you. So my dad's okay. He's <laughs> seventy-five in a few weeks. He went through cardiac rehab, and it was so cute because you know, talked to him a lot about it because that was a space that I was interested in, and as, as healthcare, and I've done a couple of investments in the space. And um, you know, cardiac rehab is something that you have to like physically go to, and so compliance is, is quite low. It's hard for people to get out of work and physically go somewhere. And if you don't have insurance, it's even harder. But my dad, my dad went to every single. Session, he loved it, and it's because they had really cute nurses. <laughs> and so I remember talking to him about it. You know, his compliance was that like they made him feel good and they were cute and they were, you know, like nice to him. And so he enjoyed going, and you know, we still have him around, and that, that's really important to me. But that was really the moment that my husband and I decided that we needed to just get out of Silicon Valley. Like, this cannot be it anymore. And so my husband actually moved first. And so he moved, he took a job in New York, and, and I, you know, kind of had, needed to wrap up. I needed to make sure that Rock Health could transition over and be, you know, in a good place. And it was, I have to be honest, it was very rocky, that transition and, and finding the right, um, you know, exit plan. And so when I moved to New York, I still worked at Rock Health for a while. And that was really challenging because we were a small team, you know, the boss was in New York. And that kind of just confirmed that, like, okay, we really need a leader who can be in Silicon Valley. That was really important, and so we hired one of our early mentors who had been with the organization for a long time, and got you know him up and running. So then I could eventually roll off, and you know, it, it did work out well. But it was hard. I mean, it was my baby. Yeah. Um, I put so much blood, sweat, and tears into that organization, so it was definitely hard to do that. So then, you know, in New York, we both kind of you know gravitated towards jobs that were a lot more, that were a lot less demanding. And so I was teaching at Columbia Business School, and doing angel investing, which is kind of a, I hate this term, but eat what you kill. Like, you know, you get you get out of as much as you put in. And so I was able to have that flexibility. At that point, we had been struggling with infertility, and I was starting IVF. And so I needed that flexibility, which was was really key for us. My husband also moved into academia, so he was at Mount Sinai. And so we, we did finally find that balance and we'll never, ever, ever go back. I mean, just not worth it. We look back at how we were living and, you know, it just it, like, I'm ashamed that I, you know, that I just, I worked so much and I, and that was all I did. And so I guess, you know everything happens for a reason.
0: Yes. And look, what an incredible journey and story. And it's brought you to, to where you are today. But I would say, you know, I think a lot of times we can all feel ashamed by certain decisions and reflecting, but I think that's what's part of our story and what makes us who we are. And it's okay. We just learn from it and then can help others by sharing our stories and journeys like you're doing right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I should start a support group for people who need to escape workaholic situations. (laughs) I have friends that still, you know, continue to do the 80, 100 hour work week thing, still travel, you know, and, and, and on top of that, they're having children. And I, you know, it was hard enough to do without children. I can't imagine, you know, how they're even sleeping. So I think we should, we could do a support group. Yeah, maybe we'll start an, we'll start an support group through our through our channel for sure. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. It really doesn't have to be that way. I'm just as fulfilled professionally now. And I, I don't work more than 45 hours a week.
0: No, that's amazing. Coming up. You'll hear how Hallie's personal experience with infertility and IVF led her to launch her most recent business, Needless. Hi, entrepreneurs! You know I am always here to provide you with as much value as possible. So I wanted to be sure that you have access to the Entrepreneurista Agenda, our weekly newsletter where we share the latest business news, success stories, grant opportunities, as well as all of our favorite resources and special offers for founders just like you. You can sign up to join our weekly newsletter and join over 50,000 other entrepreneurs over at com forward slash newsletter. That's com slash newsletter to subscribe to the Entrepreneurista agenda. So now you've moved to New York city. You are Working in schools, but somehow you now have an idea to start another business and get yourself very busy again. So tell us about your latest venture.
1: Yeah, so I, I loved teaching. I was teaching a graduate level course on digital health and healthcare investing, and I loved it. I really loved it and i I want to retire and teach again. But at the same time, my husband and I had been trying to start a family for a while, and I became extremely fluent in fertility or rather infertility and learned what I would say is too much about an industry and was just able to see so many holes in the market. And so at first I really set out to just invest in the space. And in 2016, I put up this like big post on Twitter and I just said, you know, here's here's my story and I'm looking for companies in the space because there's so much work to be done and ended up investing in a couple of companies, including Kind Body, which is a really awesome new, you know, IVF and fertility clinic across the country that actually looks and feels more like a spa.
0: Um, and we had Gina on, we had Gina on too last year.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Powerhouse. Yes. And so I was investing companies in the space and, you know, actually was inspired to start Natalist because one specific product, but I I don't like to name names, but if you know, you know, it was a fertility lubricant. So lubes that you use during sex can actually prevent you from getting pregnant. There's actually a certain classification of lubricants that are called fertility lubricants. And they go through extra FDA testing to ensure that they are sperm safe, sperm and oocyte safe. And there's a leading brand. And it is, you know, it's this, this product that has this like homey looking mother and baby on the box. And, you know, just really old school branding. And the way you use it was like these like, Applicators that you like insert into before it's not used how you would normally use a, a personal lubricant. And it was just bad. I mean the entire user experience is just really, really bad. And you know, have this like product on my bedside. I'm like, look, like it, it might be a clinical product, it might have to be FDA approved, but there's no reason that me as a user of this product, it can't feel like any other beauty or you know self-care item that I use. There's just such a disconnect. And the baby was super triggering. Like it was, you know, like it was still an intimate product, yet, you know, the branding was just totally off. And so, you know, I had that experience across a lot of the products that I was consuming during that experience and realized that there was really no overarching brand that was bringing kind of empathy to these products that you spend a lot of time with when you're trying. And so came up with the idea when I was trying but didn't actually execute on it until more recently. I was at first just wanted to find another founder that would do it. I didn't want to start another company. I, you know, was really just focusing on having a child and so I actually first just tried to find founders. So no one was working on it. Ended up, you know, having my my son through IVF and when he was a year, I decided, I need to do this. I told my husband, you know, I've, I've tried to find founders working on this. No one is doing it. it. I can't get this idea out of my head. At that point, it had been years that I've been thinking about this idea. I bought the URL, Baby Someday, which is our legal name. Oh, I bought it in 2016. So wow. I was like, you know, I couldn't, I just couldn't get this concept out of my head. And so we had at that point... Right before my son was born, had moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, where we were, could be closer to his family, and really just felt like it was the right time. I wasn't teaching anymore, I was still angel investing. But so you can imagine the deal flow in Charleston isn't similar to that in New York or San Francisco. Yeah. And so, really, then kind of everything came into place. I was at the point in my son's life where, you know, he was. He was, you know, he was older, he was one, you know, I wasn't up all night, Um, just, you know, everything kind of came into place. And we started Natalist and and launched last year, we have a bunch of products, but the one that, you know, inspired it all is, is called the lube, which is a fertility friendly lube that actually looks good on your nightstand, and is a cleaner version. So we don't use parabens or petrochemicals like the other brands do. So I'm really proud of, you know, where we are. It's still, we're still early in the company, but yeah, excited to talk about Natalys a little bit with you.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I have to say from going through my whole infertility journey as well, and all of the random products that I was buying there was no brand that was speaking directly to me and I was going through my journey well before you had launched because had you launched I'm sure I would have bought <laughs> all of your <laughs> would, well, have have would have got all got of your got products yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly but yeah I mean you know I all of the products you know basically are you know, pink, have babies on them, are not natural. And I became so cognizant when I was trying to get pregnant and going through infertility of what I was putting on my body, what I was putting in my body. And I just couldn't believe that there were so many products out there that were just, you know, gross from the perspective of like what you were putting inside of yourself. So I think, you know, what you have created is absolutely needed for women who are, you know, especially trying to get pregnant, who are going through infertility, but just women
1: in general who are trying to get pregnant. I mean, a lot of these products out there are just not not good. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the other side to that is just the, the misinformation. And so not just giving people the tools that they need, like, you know, ovulation tests or fertility lube or prenatals, but also making sure that we're explaining what these products are why we make them the way we do, how to use them, and all the information that you really need to know how to get pregnant. It's, you know, they teach you in in like sex ed, how not to get pregnant, not very effectively, but they teach you how not to get pregnant. But when it comes to actually getting pregnant, most of us really are starting from scratch. And if you've lived a relatively healthy life, it's really the first time getting pregnant is really the the first big touch point with the healthcare system. And so you can imagine the years and years of misinformation that someone can gain before they actually see a medical professional about their reproductive health is immense. And so we're also, you know, along with our products, very dedicated to fighting junk science and (laughs) providing the resources that someone really needs to know how to get pregnant and stay pregnant healthfully
0: and i've been following your brand now on social media for i think at least the past year year and a half and i've seen your community grow and how you've become this content destination for for women have you mostly used social media to get the word out about your products
1: 100% i mean we're still we're still very small but you know we we just passed you know 10 or 11,000 followers so it feels like we just have so So far to go, but that's our main channel. It really is. It's how we connect with users. And I'm very involved in every single post. I'm either writing them or editing every post. We really, you know, at this early stage, the voice is very important. The message being consistent is really important. And combining... Posts that are inspirational or educational with products that are self promotional. It's a really careful balance. But yeah, social media is our biggest channel now that we launched in Target in April. Now that we're in Target, a lot of people are meeting our brand in the store and then coming to us. So that's you know new for us, and we're figuring out and navigating how to make that experience more cohesive. But most of our customers come through us, come to us through social media or just you know word of mouth at this point.
0: As a new brand, what was the experience like being able to get into a big store like Target? Do you have any tips you can share for uh, women listening who are looking to get their break into a big store?
1: Well, Target has a really great accelerator called the Target Accelerator. I think we first got on the radar through the Target Accelerator. We fortunately, through one of our investors, knew someone high enough up to get us the right meeting. So, you know, that was something, you know, as you're thinking about investors and bringing those people on, if you are building a company that, and you want to go retail, I think that, to me, that was the biggest value add. I don't think I would have been able to get into Target on my own. But having the right contact, and then for me, also just making sure that I talked to other companies that had been in retail before, specifically Target, that gave me the right talking points and perspective on how it's done because I didn't want to come across as amateur. I mean, the company was new. I was new to this space, but I wanted to make sure that we were as educated as we could be so that we would be successful on the shelves. Do you can imagine we started the conversation, you know, almost a year before we launched at Target, you know, we closed the deal just five months before we were on the shelves Wow! And we launched in April. I mean, it was like the worst time you could possibly <laughs> launch in in retail ever. But for us, what it really, you know, I, I was trying to look at the positives and, you know, everything, you know, ends up working out. We had filmed like all this, you know, all these promotional things in Target. So we were like running down the aisles and like sitting in the carts and it was very celebratory. And that's what we were going to use when we launched. And then, you know, it was April 5th when we launched and the tone of the world just, that wasn't it. And so we were kind of forced to strip back the narrative, strip back kind of how we presented this news on behalf of our business. And we kind of got down to the core of it, which is, you know, why why do we do what we do? And it's about better access to better women's health products. And so it really helped us kind of get to that core value. And so we changed all of our messaging to really be like, women's health is... is a critical industry. And it's more important now than ever. Access is more important now than ever. And so going to Target really helps us reach the customer when they need us. And by being kind of forced to strip down our messaging into kind of our our core being and purpose, I look back at that and I'm like, I love this messaging so much more than the show-off, like, you know, big flashy content push that we had originally planned.
0: I feel like that always happens. You know, whenever there's some hard time, the learnings that come from it and the pivots that happen always tend to be better than the original plan.
1: At least yeah. that's been my experience and what I keep hearing too. Yeah, I think so. So, how
0: big is your team now and who do you have on your team?
1: Yeah, so we are one, two, three, four, five, six, Six or seven full-time, and then we have a handful of part-time folks. So our our medical team is really critical to everything that we do. So we have a medical director as well as three medical advisors. And our medical director is more heavily involved, and then the advisors are more lightly, lightly involved. But they're all practicing physicians. So three of them are OBGYNs specializing in women's health, fertility, and pregnancy. And then one is a urologist focusing on men's health. You can tell where our priorities are as a business. Yes. Uh (laughs) <laughs> um, and so they really help guide our product strategy so it's really important to us that we, we're constantly growing our product line we want to be a one-stop shop for everything fertility and pregnancy and so they help us make sure that our bar is really high and that we're only putting products out there that are going to benefit someone's life and that we avoid anything that is controversial or not rooted in having you know any sort of evidence that it'll help someone so they help us a lot with that and things with the content and making sure that you know what we're putting out there is medically accurate. My right hand person is our CO Vernita. She was our very first employee. So she's been with me from day one for, you know, we got money in the bank. And I was like, I need this, you know, I need someone who's you know better at the operations. And so she came on really early. Her role over the last year has really been or the last eight months has really been transitioning our team to being virtual. So that has been, you know, obviously a big change for us. And most of our team is mom. So just the work environment and what we needed to change, she has completely led all that. I'm I'm not a, a good people manager, I'm not a good culture builder. I know that about myself. I just want to work. She's the person who's like stepping back and thinking, like, how you know, how do we make sure that we're building the right culture from day one that where everybody can thrive? And so that has been like the best the best investment that we've made as a business is really from day one thinking about, you know, culture, making sure that you know, I'm not missing out on important family things and that the team really, you know, feels like they have a good balance. What is your your culture like? Our culture is really fun and easygoing. It's just a very nice, like, it's not intense at all. We're very, even when we have like a product sprint, we just have very lovely people who are not like combative or aggressive. Everybody in the team is just really collaborative and fun. We all, you know, sign off at five and we have a few non-parents on the team and I think they appreciate having their own lives. Our marketing coordinator, she's also a yoga teacher. So she gets, you know, fills some of her free time on that. And she lives on a sailboat, which is super cool. That's Um, amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And you've met Margaret. Margaret's our director of marketing and she's also a mom. Our director of product is a mom. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we all are really, really passionate about what we're doing and serving other moms and helping people become parents. I mean, it really is, it drives us every day when we get a review of a, you know, one of our products, it's like, whoever's like first to share it on Slack, y'all, it just like warms our hearts. It like just reminds us of why we're doing what we're doing. So it's a really nice, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't stress. I think we're like pretty even keel and yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And we also, I think Vernita has created a good environment for just like, Checking in with how people are doing. I think it's easy to just be in your own, you know, alley where you're just working on what you're working on and not realizing that maybe someone else is having a rough week or is, you know, struggling to figure out a certain problem and, and you can help them with a solution. So that's been like a big learning for me is all that, all that people stuff.
0: No, and it definitely sounds like your experience that you had when you were working and building Rock Health and having the burnout and where you made your priorities. That's definitely rolled over into how you wanted to run and and manage this business. I can hear
1: it. I like sometimes I reach out to the people that used to work with me at Rock Health and I'm like, I'm sorry. Like I would schedule, like we would do happy hours and dinners. We we ban team dinners. There are no team dinners, right? Like that's your private time. Like if you're gonna be asking people to like have a meal with the team, like do it on work hours. Don't yeah. disguise it as like a work event on someone's personal hours. And I I mean I used to do that all the time, and now I get so frustrated. But now my husband knows that rule, and so he only schedules work lunches. But yeah, I mean I I have been committed. and I told Bernita that from day one, like. I can easily fall into that trap. I've done it before. It's like, it's like being an addict. It really is like you, you know, you can see yourself going down a path that is not healthy for you, but it doesn't feel unhealthy because you're enjoying the work. Yeah. And so it was really important to me that, you know, that I'm not going to fall in that trap, (laughs) but you have to work at it. You really have to set boundaries and stick to them. You know, having a kid absolutely helps you set boundaries because you can't just be on your phone working when you're, when you could, but that's not great parenting. (laughs) You know, you want to be there with your child and be as present as you can. So that's helped me set boundaries. I
0: feel like I'm having all of these aha moments listening right now of all of the reprioritizations I personally need to do. So thank you. (laughs)
1: Great. I mean, I'm like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm a big advocate now because I've done both and Natalist has been extremely successful. We saw 500% growth since COVID. You know, it's like, we're going to be, this is, I believe a lot in this company. We're doing well. We're meeting our numbers. We're growing. And I'm not overworked. I'm in it for the long haul. I plan to do this for many, 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 many years. And I just think that we're so short-sighted and companies have, large companies, they're the ones that started this, right? Like they want to get as much they're, they have salaried employees. They want to get as much out, squeeze as much time as they can from these salaried employees. And that's kind of where all of this culture started. But I want to, you know, I'm breaking, I broke it for myself, for my, you know, my team. And none of us want that life. And so I'm happy to talk about that anytime because it can be done. I see it. I want to do a whole
0: follow-up <laughs> podcast recording or LinkedIn live or just a phone conversation yes. with you <laughs> for sure. Up next. Hallie's best tips for founders looking to raise venture capital and the origins of her inspiring time management skills. Hey, entrepreneurs, Stephanie here. Dressing up while working from home has truly been a challenge. But guess what? I found a solution founded by a fellow entrepreneur. It's Armoire. You can rent stylish clothes weekly or monthly right from the app. You'll spend less time shopping and you can get up to 50% off of your first month plus two bonus items. Just use the code Entreprenista at checkout or visit armoire.style forward to claim your offer. Look and feel your best with Armoire. I know I do. That's armoire.style forward Hallie, so you are an angel investor. You've invested in so many businesses over the years, but you have also raised money for this startup. We have a lot of women who listen to our podcast and are looking for advice about fundraising, tips, anything that you can share
1: to help point them in the right direction. Yeah. So I've invested in over 100 companies over the last decade. Wow. Wow. So my experience writing checks is a lot greater than my experience receiving checks. And because I had a lot of experience investing, my experience fundraising was very different. I knew exactly who I wanted to work with or people that i would worked with for many years. And they were folks that were probably more likely to invest in me because they knew me versus like, no matter what, I could go to them with, you know, a garbage collection idea. They might, you know, they might have invested. I think that, that really shows that a lot of times it's about the jockey and not the horse. And so network really is everything. And you've talked about this a lot on your show, that having that network and having those relationships before you need to fundraise is really critical. So my, as I said, like my fundraising experience was not typical. I was able to fundraise rather quickly. We were able to fundraise quite a bit of money when we really were just in our infancy. But I can share some things that I've learned as an investor and kind of some patterns that I've seen when companies approach me for investment I would say, you know, you need to start just building the company. Just pretend like you're not going to be able to raise money. Just keep, just go. Just go at it. Just start bootstrapping. Show that you have kind of the grit and the resourcefulness because you might not raise money or you might raise money in different ways. And keep in mind that there are other sources of capital, whether that's crowdsourcing, debt, grants, venture capital, and angel investing isn't the only capital source, and so it is important to just keep going because the more traction that you have, the more proof that you have that your business is viable, the lower the risk is for that investor and the easier it is for them to invest. And so they'll look at a lot of aspects of your business. They'll look at the team, the execution, the products, the competitors. But a lot of times, it's really just about timing. So you know, you'll you call to a, I'll have a founder that's like an amazing idea, great company, Airbnb, for instance, he came to me, like, I don't remember what year it was, 2008. I had this email that I posted one time because it's hysterical. He was asking me for angel investor introductions. I had no money then. And so I wasn't able to invest. And so timing is everything. I have come reach out right before Nadal has a really big product launch. and I just don't have time to get on the phone with them and I'll miss yeah. the window. So it's not necessarily always about being a fit for the investor and their interests, but it's also about their timing on like what's going on in their life if they have other deals that are happening other you know if they're an angel investor and not a full-time investor timing is really everything which is why I said having those relationships up front if you've already built that relationship it's much easier for them to write a check than for them to start the relationship get to know you and then write the check so building those relationships early on is really important you know there's a lot of talk around, you know, should you cold email or should you have, you know, an introduction and historically introductions are really the best way to get to know investors. But what we know about that is that it really in adds a lot of bias to mm-hmm. the fundraising experience for women and for people of color. And so there is a movement among VCs and the more progressive VCs to kind of ban the warm intros, because if they're just taking warm intros, then they're never really going outside their own network. And their own network probably looks more like them than yeah. like America. And so we are seeing, you know, more, you know, investors that are open to taking cold intros. They'll generally have like a form on their website that you can fill out. And then at that point it's like, can you write something succinct enough that is compelling enough for them to take that meeting? And as you can imagine, I mean, I probably get 10 pitches a day. I can't read them all. I can't see them all, but sometimes something will stand out. And it's generally gonna be a metric. It's generally gonna be like Here's what we've done so far. That kind of makes my ears perk. Like, oh, you've you've already sold that much. Like, you must have you've been working really hard, and you're proving this business out. I want to be part of that. So I think those are some things to keep in mind. I, you know, knowing the investors that are going to be most helpful. You know, beggars can't be choosers. Sometimes you have, you just have to take the investors that are interested and willing. But if you do have the choice. You know, if you are talking to multiple investors, keep in mind that these are relationships that are going to be with you for a long time. These are people who can make your life miserable, or these are people who can really help you succeed. So, choosing as wisely as you can is something you know to ensure ensure that you do. I, I had a call earlier this week with a founder who she's looking to take investment. She has a lot of investors interested, and one of the investors that's interested is my lead investor, and so she she wanted to do some diligence on that. And I will always go to bat for Aileen Lee at Cowboy Ventures. She is like number one investor. She's so helpful. She has made tangible difference in my business. And so I will always go on the phone and you know go to bat for her to make sure that other founders know how great she is. But I don't actually get a ton of people reaching out to me for those sort of references. And I think in that uh, entrepreneurs... Kind of miss that opportunity to get feedback on the invest on the investors, and I actually think that not just going to the companies that have succeeded, but going to the companies that the investors have backed that have not succeeded, you will learn a lot about investor if you learn about how they handled a company not succeeding, and if they maintained a positive relationship with that founder and continue to do whatever they could to help that founder, or if they just jump ship. So I would, you know, if you are again able to. Choose your own VCs, then I would spend time doing some diligence about them and you know just cold calling referencing some of their former portfolio companies.
0: That is such good advice. Thank you for for sharing that. Is there something that you know now that you wish you knew before you started natalis
1: Ooh, there's a lot. Well, one thing that someone told me that I'm so glad I learned the last hour, I had never considered this before, but my my lawyer actually was like, don't give away any board seats at this round. Even though it was a large $5 million round, he was like, you just want to be able to move as fast as possible. And so don't give up a board seat. Just make it you on the board. You will be able to move a lot faster. And you can promise your lead investor a spot at the Series A, but for now, just you know, keep it to yourself. And I'm so glad I did that because... I can make big decisions. I mean, there aren't that big of decisions right now in my companies. <laughs> you know, we're not like acquiring, you know, other companies. But I do think that's something that I didn't really know until he told me. And it's something I probably wouldn't have pushed for otherwise. So, really thinking about how you can, you know, keep and maintain as much agility as possible in those early days.
0: That's such a good tip. Have you had other mentors in the industry over the years?
1: So many, so many. I mean, I think. I think I don't do as good enough of a job helping other women (laughs) as people who have helped me. And not just women. I mean, I've I've had a lot of men who've been my advocates and supporters. And, you know, I think I I spent a lot of time, I invested a lot of time networking when I was living in San Francisco. And that, you know, has paid off. And I, I feel like I have a large network of people that, not just professionally, but have really become family members. I mean, they really have been part of my life for so long. They've seen me grow in my career. And so that's, you know, nice to reflect on. I I don't know if there's, you know, I would say my my lawyer is one of those people randomly. I've known him since my husband worked at Facebook and he was one of the Facebook lawyers. And so I've known him personally since then, but he worked with Raquel from day one, he's worked with Natalist from day one, and he's been just an incredible sounding board because he sees a lot of businesses. Um, And so he's always just giving me the most sage advice for all the kind of like the the tactical pieces of of building a company. Yeah, there's a lot of people that I'm really grateful for. And I hope that I can pay it forward. Somehow.
0: <laughs> well, you definitely are right now. And I will say and agree with you that having a really great lawyer and having a lawyer as a mentor, because we we have a lawyer who's been a mentor to us since we first started our business, is so yeah. important. Because as you know, running a business, challenges come up all the time, I mean, especially once you you know have employees and issues come up and just having someone like that where you can... Have them on speed dial for a quick yeah. call to be sure you're not going to get in any trouble is definitely important.
1: <laughs> it is. I mean, it's a big investment. Fortunately, like when you're friends, you your friends, you're going to have lunch. It's it's off the clock. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's been really helpful. And you know, I so my lawyers with Fenwick and West. His name is Michael Escabel. And I will say, you know, as a founder, you're going to have to decide if you want to work with a small law firm or a big law firm. And there's a lot of pros and cons for both of that. What I've enjoyed working with a large law firm is that I can ask him a question, like for instance. I was asking about GDPR. We don't sell directly Mm. internationally, but people we have a lot of international customers that end up buying our products, having them shipped somewhere like a freight forwarder that then ships it to them. So I was like, do we need to be GDPR compliant? I don't know. So I just, you know, was on my morning walk and talk with him and, you know, ask him that question. He was like, great, I'll just ask our compliance team. So I, you know, I would say there, again, there are pros and cons of big law firms and small law firms. They're all very expensive. You're going to need to budget a lot of money for uh, law firms, especially if you don't use a safe in your fundraise. It's very, very expensive to, to fundraise. And, you know, I, I've, really benefit from working with a large firm. So that's the way I will go.
0: No, absolutely. We actually bartered with our lawyer when we first started because oh. he needed social media help. So we helped him with yeah, the social media great. and he yeah. gave us hours. And boy, did oh. we need that because, you know, as you said, legal is expensive and Courtney and I bootstrapped Socialfly. We had no money. Yeah. So that was that was our only option. That was our currency awesome. at the time. You do what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. I don't know.
1: So wait, there is, there's any lawyers out there that will work for pregnancy <laughs> Let me know because my lawyer is like five hundred dollars now. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's a lot. A lot of pregnancy tests.
0: So I have a question that I have been wondering now since we've started this interview because you have invested in over hundred businesses. You're a mom. You are also launched a new startup. How do you manage your time? Do you have you know secrets to your time management skills? And can you share them with us?
1: I do. I pride myself on productivity and that's something that I've been working on since I was in middle school. So I I played the violin in middle school and high school, and and the violin is very heavy, and I had to carry it on the bus every day. And so I didn't have the room or the arms to bring home my school books. And so it was really important to me that I would finish all my homework at school so that I didn't have to like carry everything home. And this is such a silly story, but it really like did kind of define my productivity. And so I would use every, you know, free period, lunch, recess to just make sure that I got everything I needed done. I wouldn't take any homework home. So I never took homework home in middle school or high school and just took my violin. <laughs> so would practice my violin. Eventually, I actually, my grandfather got me a second violin. So I was able to then keep a violin at home and a violin at school, which was nice. But that kind of set the foundation for me to just be a very efficient and productive worker. And so I will between the hours of you know seven or eight and five PM just get an impossible amount of work done. I don't waste time. I don't you know like I, I won't call a meeting without an agenda. I won't attend a meeting without an agenda. And just I've, I map out my entire week, not just my meetings, but my I block out times to work on things. So I'll you know this is the time that I need to write that email. This is the time that I need to come up with our. Black Friday campaign. Here's, you know, I, I block it out for myself so that I know I have a balanced week and I can move things around in advance so that I'm not at the end of the day feeling like I didn't get to things. Because sometimes a, a to do list isn't the best way to do it because it's not necessarily in order of importance. Yeah. It doesn't also reflect how long things take. And so, blocking my calendar is is really helpful. I also try to, you know, I, I really. Don't work out a lot, but I do try to at least move a little bit a day. So I'm either taking a meeting as a walk, especially now with COVID, it's it's been really nice. So I'll take generally meetings, you know, walking, which I think does help with your productivity. It kind of keeps you energized, gives you some movement. And I don't drink coffee, but I'm a big green tea drinker. So that gives me like the boost of caffeine that I need in the morning which really, really does help because, you know, we're all tired. I'm not, not tired. but
0: <laughs> No, those are such amazing tips. And I wish we had more time to continue this conversation. We are definitely going to have to continue it either in a bonus episode or an Instagram Live or LinkedIn Live because I feel like you have so many more words of wisdom to share. My last question for you is, what does being an
1: entrepreneur mean to you, Hallie? I think it means balancing everything, being able to do everything, being a generalist and a specialist at the same time. And a quote that has been going around a lot lately, which I just love is you're the first, but don't be the last and making sure that you don't go into an industry or a new opportunity with a combative, competitive mindset, but rather the mindset of a rising tide lifts all boats, and what can I do to help others? And that that sort of mindset is very freeing. As soon as you start to think of women and other women as on your side and people that you want to help, that that comes back to you in the world. So that was a very long answer, but yeah, don't be the last. I Make love sure, that opportunities as well. <laughs>
0: I love that so much. Where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy your
1: incredible products? Yes. So we're on all the social medias, Natalist Co. Online, we're at natalist.com where you can shop all of our products and use the code Entrepreneur N for 10% off. And we're also in Target. So you could go to your local Target and find us there.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your incredible story. This was so much fun. And I learned so much. And I have been taking notes. And I have my new tips that I am going to start executing. Thank you. Thanks to your advice. I, I You need to. I think I definitely have to start taking a walking meeting every day because... Yes. Okay, well, you and I can do that. Yes, there we go. <laughs> we'll do our check in 15 minutes. Got to get on the block. Yeah. I have to do it. Thank you, Holly. I'm Stephanie. And this is the best business meeting I've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entreprenistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entreprenistapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Entreprenistas, it's Steph here. Do you want to experience what it's like to be part of our Entreprenista League community of founders? Now is your chance. New member open enrollment begins on June 10th, and so does our experience week. I really want you to have the opportunity to experience what it's like to be part of the most supportive community that will be here to support you at all stages of your business journey during our experience week. This will be a five-day virtual event series, and it starts on Monday, June 10th through Friday, June 14th. You're going to get access to live networking and learning events, business growth strategies, as well as office hours with Kim Corral, who is a CEO and serial entrepreneur, as well as a prominent angel investor. You will also get access to a session on how to win grants with Kat Weaver and Katie Dunn, founders of Power to Pitch. Plus, our mentor, Carrie Kirpin, will be teaching a session all about how to build a profitable business that can sell for more money. And of course, I'll be hosting two info and networking sessions where you can really get an inside look at all of the exclusive benefits and resources that are offered only inside of our Entreprenista League community. Plus, you'll have the chance to meet and build relationships with current members. You can register today for Experience Week over at Entreprenista.com forward That's entreprenista.com forward slash experience week to join us for a week of free virtual events. I cannot wait to meet you and be part of your business journey.